Hey, this is Rob Orman, and you are listening to the Stimulus Podcast. For those of you new to the show, welcome. What we do here is deconstruct strategies, tactics, and ideas that can be applied to living and working with intent. What does that mean, with intent? Kind of a vague term. It means examining what you do, why you do it, and how you do it, so that you're not just going through the motions day after day. I am an emergency physician, so much of the perspective of these discussions is through that lens. But the lessons here are applicable to and digestible by anybody and everybody. You can subscribe to Stimulus in any podcast app you use by searching Stimulus Rob Orman. And if you want to learn more, you can go to our website, StimulusPodcast.com. Enjoy the show. I noticed a very similar feeling with the anxiety of the clinic versus the stress or anxiety, but in a positive way when I would ski race. So the body state or the physiology between being scared or stressed or in this anxious place really isn't a ton different than excited, adrenaline, right? Like if if you want to be jumping out of a plane, it's an exciting place. If we're stressed and anxious, it's sympathetic, right? Fight, flight, freeze. If we're out there doing a really hard, intensive interval training workout or something, it's sympathetic. And so we have to learn how to manage that. My body feels the same. Why is my mind not dealing with the same same way, right? When I had that body sensation of high level stress before a ski race, I would take that and it would turn into performance. But all of a sudden I found myself in this state You know, it's a state of arousal that led to a panic attack, but it's just a different environment. How we think about stress shifts how our physiology responds to it. And through this, I started thinking about breath. Breath. Breathing. It's something that links us all, something we've all been doing since the moment we were born. And even though we're naturals at it, we can truly do this without thinking we might not have perfected it to the point that we can make breath work for us and not just with us. The voice you just heard is Ryan Cheney. Ryan is a therapist and expert in breath work, using how we breathe to create different mental and physiologic states, be they up or down regulated, focused or super chill. And in this episode, we cover different breathing patterns to create different states including techniques on how to downregulate when you're amped up or frazzled, how to breathe more effectively, should you breathe through your mouth or your nose. But we start out this conversation with a tool that I had never heard of before, and that is using visual focus or visual field framing to quickly adjust or change our physiologic and psychologic state. breath work is super powerful and then also our vision so how we're focusing also has a big impact on the nervous system and whether we're in more of a sympathetic state or a parasympathetic state like what we're visually focusing just the object yeah we're focusing on yeah because the our vision is tied to a huge chunk of our brain so when we get into a sympathetic place our vision tends to dart around right we're looking for safety we're looking for danger So one of the really powerful tools to downregulate, so let's say I just saw a really stressful patient and my nervous system is ramped up a little bit, right? Because we have these mirror neurons and they start mirroring each other and that person walks out and I'm a little stressed. Yeah, like when you have a borderline patient? Yeah. 
boy, that mirroring. Yeah. I'm, and I hate to say that I'm not proud of this. You feel repellent to yourself. Yeah. I mean, borderline, or let's say you have that an- anxious client or even, even the opposite, the really depressed client that's really hard or the depressed patient that's hard to get to do anything, right? Like that can bring you down. So you can use breath to shift your state or your nervous system up or down as you need, right? So if you, if you have that hard client that leaves and you're feeling stressed out, you can take 10 seconds, open up your panoramic vision as wide as you can, right? It's almost like you're looking down on yourself. So the wider our vision gets, it directly influences or engages the parasympathetic nervous system. Let's pause there for a second, because that can happen. Let's say in the emergency department, you've just been in in, in a like a pediatric code mm-hmm. and you know regardless of how it goes even just thinking about it kind of shaking a little bit I mean, even if it's perfect and you still have the rest of the day to go and you're so amped up but that amped state is not going to be your most cognitively effective or focused or prefrontal cortex yeah. state let's say I, I walk out of the room how exactly do i do that panoramic vision and then we'll get to the breathing next so what I would be doing is just focusing on opening up peripheral vision as much as I can. And you can do this even in a hallway. It helps if you're like looking out a window and you can look. This is one of the reasons why often if you go on like a hike, you come to a vista, then there's this experience of peace and calm while you're opening up that panoramic vision. So you can simply open up vision as wide as you can. And at the very least, take a big breath in and exhale for as long and slow as you can. So we're aiming for like six to 10 seconds. You know, there's certain protocols I teach people and we can get very customized because everybody's neurology is different. But I tell people, if you're stressed out and you can't remember exactly how to breathe, take six breaths, big breath in, slowly exhale through the nose, open up that panoramic vision. And it's amazing how the system will downregulate and you can think better. You're more focused. You're feeling calmer. And it happens pretty quickly. Do you do those at the same time, the panoramic vision and the breathing? And then how long would you keep that panoramic view? Part of this is also learning to check in with yourself. The more you practice this downregulation type of skill sets, whether it's breath work, opening your vision, I think the better the system gets at shifting gears in and out. It can be anywhere where like I'm behind, I walk my client out, the next one is there. I'm going to take two or three deep, slow breaths, open my vision for 10 to 15 seconds, and then pulling the next person in. What is it that you recommend as far as amount of time to breathe in, to hold, and then to breathe out? And then like what goes in the nose, what goes yeah, in or yeah. out the mouth? Might be helpful to talk a little bit about physiology around this. When I think of breath, there's kind of three pillars that I, that I kind of think of. One is the mechanics. So mechanics is like, how are we actually breathing? Many people are vertical or chest breathers, right? This is where you're only using this upper area of your chest. If I tell someone to take a big breath or a deep breath, I'm going to watch and see how they breathe. And most people, it's this big breath up in the chest, and they're not using this lower part of their diaphragm or, or lungs at all. Right? So one, you see the chest expand, and the other, you see the abdomen expand. It should expand your, your abdomen or your belly, you know, not really like the lower belly. It's, it's always kind of hard to explain on a podcast, but your kind of the midsection around the lower rib cage, 360 degrees, that should be expanding. 
And that should be the first part of the wave and then up into the chest. And then when we exhale, the chest releases and then the abdomen. So often what I'll see with people around mechanics is they'll, their chest will come out and up and their belly will collapse in. So it's called a reverse breath wave that affects people in, in different ways. One of them, you know, you'll, if you have people that are like patients that are, you know, I'll have people come into my office who've had tons of body work, physical therapy, seen doctors for neck pain, shoulder pain. And sometimes when we, we get their breath shifted and the mechanics correct, that pain can just go away because they're using all these secondary breathing muscles in their neck and their shoulders to lift that chest. And they're not really using their diaphragm efficiently. You're speaking to people who are intimately aware of intercostal muscles, thoracic musculature, diaphragm, and says, hey, if the lungs fill, the lungs fill. Why do I care You know, if it's the, the abdomen's going out or the chest is going out? What is advantageous about that, you can call it diaphragmatic breathing, or you know, when you see the upper part of the abdomen is the first part of the wave, why is that better than say, oh, I see my chest expand is when I'm breathing? The diaphragm also stimulates the vagus nerve as well. So diaphragmatic breathing has more of a parasympathetic effect, but generally like even the volume is different, right? Like if I have somebody breathe into a balloon, they take a big full breath, just using their upper chest and then blow that balloon up and we put a little line where it's at. And then we work on using the diaphragm and getting a full breath in, and then we blow it up again, it's gonna look different. So there's more volume. So that, that helps as well. Part of it too, though, is, is it's the whole body. The mechanics are, you know, if you're just breathing your chest, those secondary muscles are working really, really hard. The diaphragm is designed to help us breathe. And so the better we use it, the more efficient we are, the less we end up breathing. Usually in chest breathers, you'll also tend to notice that they breathe shallow and more often. If you're breathing short and shallow, you could breathe, you know, 40 to 50,000 times in a day easily. But if you end up having better mechanics and work on CO2 tolerance, which we'll get to, then you're, you're breathing much less, right? So then you're looking at like 14,000 times. Over time, that's a huge difference. It's 50% reduction in, in just the work your system is doing to breathe in and out. So we got mechanics, and now you were about to start on physiology. Yeah, so physiology, and this is, this is the part, you know, your question about what kind of breath do you do? What kind of protocol? How long would you breathe in and out? So the answer is it's different for everybody. And that's largely based on, on, on your physiology. We can get what's called a CO2 baseline or CO2 tolerance baseline. It's a subjective test. It's not like a highly scientific measurement, but it gives us a spot to think about where does my system tolerate CO2? Because most people that I run into have a pretty low tolerance. If we breathe shallow and often the system starts to create a lower tolerance for CO2. Imagine hemoglobin is a car and this car is cruising along and oxygen are the wheels. So that those the O2 wheels bind to that hemoglobin. So imagine a tunnel. So in order for the oxygen to, to come off of this hemoglobin, we have to drive through a tunnel and that's, that's your CO2 tunnel. And that allows the oxygen to come off the hemoglobin and then to be utilized by the tissue. 
So if we have a low tolerance for CO2, our use of oxygen throughout our system isn't very good. So if we start to shift and practice our breathing, our system will adapt and we'll become higher tolerant or have a higher tolerance to CO2, which means there's just a greater abundance of it in the system. And so we have a better utilization of oxygen. And a longer tunnel. Yes. So this directly affects how you breathe. And this directly affects how I work with people and what kind of protocols or how long they're breathing in or holding or exhaling, depending on where they're at in their adaptation. So some people with a really good tolerance can do a pretty long hold and they can build a better tolerance. But often, you know, if, if most people, if I sit down, I'm like, okay, I want you to breathe in for eight seconds and I want you to hold it for 25 and breathe out for 16. There's no way they'll be able to do that. We're going to get to some more specifics on breathing technique in a few minutes, but I wanted to take just a moment to flesh out this CO2 tolerance concept. That was a new term for me, a new idea for me, but basically how much CO2 buildup can you tolerate? Another way to think of this is what is your carbon dioxide reactivity? And there is actually a well-researched relationship between reactivity to carbon dioxide levels and anxiety states. And the theory here with these state-changing breathing exercises is that the higher your CO2 tolerance, the more CO2 you can acutely tolerate, the lower your overall level of arousal and stress sensitivity, amongst other things. So that's the theory. We're not talking about Pickwickian CO2 retainers. We're talking about otherwise healthy adults. How this is tested is you take three full normal breaths, and then you take a full inhale with a deep breath and slowly, continuously exhale. And the time of your slowest exhale is your CO2 tolerance. And then this CO2 tolerance number is one of the things used to calculate the duration of breaths for further breathing exercises. Imagine that I'm coming to you. I'm really stressed in these situations, and I need to be able to level down and okay, I understand the panoramic vision. And then there's this breathing cycle where I breathe in and I hold and then I breathe out. What's the optimal move for me there? Mm -hmm. Like how, how would you guide me through that? Mm -hmm. If we're going to do the test, right, that you can, we can come up with the seconds or the baseline and I'll, I'll just use myself as an example of guiding through and then plug it into some formulas and get some stuff. If you don't have time to do that with a, a patient, you can start out with like a very basic breath, five in, 10 out, right? This is a cadence breath. And this is something that I might give to somebody to help them downregulate before bed if they struggle with sleeping. If five in and 10 out feels really hard, right? I'll just work with them on it. I'm like, if this feels hard for you, adjust it down. Go to four seconds, eight out. If that's too hard, three seconds, six out right? It's just a one-two ratio. Why is it that the exhale is longer than the inhale? And then you have this brief, I guess you'd say apnea period in the middle. I mean, what, what are yeah. those things triggering? We have the mechanics, we have the physiology. And then that third one that I want to talk about was psychology, how it affects our mood, how it affects the psychology. So there are different breath patterns that are going to induce different states. And so generally, the longer the exhale, the more downregulating it's going to be. Now, if you go too long, right, the CO2 builds up and then your system feels a little anxious or like it, it's a challenge for the system. 
So generally when I'm working with people to downregulate, we're going to be working on longer exhales and also some breath holds, right? Apnea, absence of breath, because the breath hold can bring the heart rate down a little bit. So I like to think of breath patterns in kind of three main categories. We have our apnea breath patterns. So apnea, like I just talked about was absence of breath. This largely, a lot of these patterns originated from a lot of the free diving community. This is where they really work on upping their tolerance to CO2 so they can dive deeper and longer. So we have our apnea, which is generally going to have some type of hold pattern. So like a simple one would be five in, 10 hold, five out. Or an apnea two, which is often very downregulating for people. It's a one, three, two ratio. So five in times three, 15 seconds, hold 10 seconds out. But again, everybody's neurology is different. So until you have someone kind of do this stuff, it's hard to know exactly how their system is going to respond. So we have our apnea, then we have cadence protocols. A simple five in, five out is a cadence protocol. One that can be more downregulated is like a box breathing. So imagine you're doing five in, five hold, 10 out, five hold. That can be very downregulated for some people. Good for like before sleep. And then this third category is superventilation, and which is a made up term essentially for an intentional hyperventilation. Wim Hof. Yeah, Wim Hof is a perfect example of superventilation. And that is very upregulating to the nervous system. So those are kind of the three categories, superventilation, very upregulating. Then we have cadence, which cadence I think of like warmups. Am I, do I need to gain a little energy? Do I need to be a little more focused? That category generally is how people respond. And apnea is a, a really good one for generally downregulating. I want to get back to where the breath goes in and out. Cause I noticed something as, as you were talking, as I was listening, I was breathing through my nose. I felt super calm. When you said something and I felt, oh, I want to ask a question, I want to follow up, and I was leaning into it, I could feel that I was breathing through my mouth. And I had actually never even thought of that before. And I could feel a physiologic change. I could feel myself getting excited. Not super excited, but just a little bit more. I said, I need to listen to this more. So I started breathing through my nose again. Now I'm back in, in listening mode. And I hadn't really felt that just such a cute shift. And it wasn't, I wasn't doing any breathing exercise. I just changed where that breath was going. What is the physiology? What is the psychology or even the mechanics happening with mouth versus nose? Big difference. And like yourself, I didn't, you know, up till five or six years ago, didn't think about nose versus mouth at all. And a good way of measuring is most of us sometime in our life have had to get up and give a presentation. Maybe it was in school or, you know, maybe an ER conference or something, right? After you get done with those presentations, even if you enjoy doing that kind of thing, it can be exhausting. And a big element of that is because you're breathing through your mouth. So our our mouth is very sympathetic toned and our nose is very parasympathetic toned. And so one of the biggest, simplest takeaways I I work with people on is that most of the time we should be breathing through our nose. Our mouth is great for when we're talking, we kind of have to breathe through our mouth that way, or when we're eating, or maybe some type of intense exercise. And intense, I mean like sprint workouts, not going for a nice jog. And so people are generally over breathing. The mouth is very sympathetic toned. Yes, you get more in air in and out. If you need it, that's a good thing. So like, what's the metabolic need? If I'm sprinting, if I'm doing a 
hundred meter sprint interval workout, I need to dump a bunch of CO2 and I need more oxygen. So yeah, I'm going to breathe through my mouth. But if we don't need it, if we, if we don't, if we think of it as gears, then it becomes inefficient. And so the nose is really powerful because it has a very parasympathetic inducing tone. There's nitrous oxide, vasodilator, it's a filter, it warms the air. So in general, I work with people on like learning to breathe through their nose and it's really uncomfortable for a lot of people. If you can learn to become aware and practice this so that your baseline is breathing through your nose. But then if you're in a situation where it is high intensity, you can be like, oh, I need to breathe through my nose and slow that breath down, especially that out breath, right? This is one of the, and we haven't talked about this, but this is one of the things I love about this other work I do around exposure, heat, and ice therapy, right? It, it puts somebody, you get into 32 degree water and you're going to go into a sympathetic state. And then I can work with people on learning or helping them learn how to downregulate their nervous system. And that translates out to real life. You know, I'll hear stories from people like, oh, I hate going to the dentist. And after going through this experience and learning how to breathe through my nose and downregulate by slowing my breath down, last time I was in the dentist office feeling stressed and anxious, I just thought, oh, breathe through your nose, slow that air down, big breath in, slow exhale, see if I can get to like six to 10 seconds, really simple. But some people are just natural mouth breathers. And we live in this sympathetic charge state for most of the day. Yeah. And so, and who, what's the chicken? What's the egg with the, how do you teach someone or convert someone to do something, which is not even conscious? Largely breath is unconscious. Most of us really don't think about it most of the time. Part of how I work with clients as well is thinking about, okay, how do we bring breath into consciousness, work on it? And then ultimately we want it to go unconscious again, but with a better pattern, whether that's mechanics the rate of breathing, you know, whatever that element is. And then we have a powerful set of tools that we can use to change our state or regulate our nervous system when we need them. But if, if we go back into an unconscious pattern that is much better, right? We're breathing way less, probably half as many times per day. It makes a big difference over time. I'm going to tell you, I was skeptical. I was dubious about this. And I did mention what I was feeling while Ryan and I were talking during the interview. I felt this state change when I went from breathing through my nose to breathing through my mouth and then back to breathing through my nose. But I don't know, was this an association? What was it? Was it the state that made my breathing change or vice versa? I'm probably a combination of the two. I just didn't know what to make of all that. So I started experimenting. Now, this is going to sound way out there. And the first time I did it, I was thinking, what? the heck am I getting myself into? But I started taping my mouth shut at night when I sleep. It's with this special tape called Snoreless Strips. Just a super adhesive tape, doesn't rip your lips off when you remove it. And I'll say this, that sleep became markedly better, way more restful. And not that I suffer sleep apnea, but reading up on this found that there is evidence that sleep apnea is associated with oral breathing, way more oral breathing than people who even just are simple snorers. And of course, there's all sorts of devices that sleep apnics can use to decrease their oral breathing. And I'm not an expert in this, but I actually could not find evidence that taping your mouth shut cures sleep issues. But anecdotally, I've found great benefit. I've also tried periods of taping my mouth closed when working at the desk for several hours. Not when I'm doing voiceover like this, of course, but you know, when I'm researching The work during those periods, much more focused, able to stay on task for much longer periods of time, and more relaxed while doing it. 
This is all, of course, N of 1, but the segment is called N of 1, so there you go. And I'm thinking, yeah, maybe this nose breathing makes you feel a little better. And as I dug deeper, I found a tremendous amount of pseudoscience, BS, lofty terms that mean nothing and sentences that would give even the mildest skeptic a case of angina. But there is science to it. There's actually quite a bit of science to it. We'll put some references in the show notes. There was a 2013 study out of Japan that found that mouth breathing led to increased oxygen load to the prefrontal cortex compared to nose breathing. I had no idea what that meant, but there's some associations with ADHD and prefrontal activation. And the authors postulate this, quote, our results suggest that continued oxygen load on the prefrontal cortex from mouth breathing during the waking hours is one possible cause of ADHD. Wow. I've not found further research to support that, but interesting. And Ryan mentioned nitric oxide in the nose. I heard this. I thought, what? What in the world? But indeed, nitric oxide is made in the paranasal sinuses. So that nose air has some good stuff that increases pulmonary vascular flow, decreases pulmonary vascular resistance. And there's much more in the research on nose breathing. But I'll tell you one thing I couldn't find. I couldn't find any evidence that supported the benefits of pure mouth breathing over nose breathing. And you start out during the day, you know, 10 to 20 minutes where at the end of their day, they're walking around home, you know, making dinner or something. And, you know, it's, I actually, it can be fun. Like if you have kids, right, everybody gets to do it. You know, we all tape our mouth shut and then you get a 20 minute break where everyone's quiet. It's great. Um, but it can be really uncomfortable for people at first if they have never really done that, especially if they have allergies or different constrictions. And you do it during the day because it's a little less scary when you have control over it, right? If it, if it really is a hard thing for you, you can take the tape off. If you have to start out at three minutes a day because it's so uncomfortable, let's start out there. Whatever you can do. Most of our lives, like you alluded to, in this current culture, partly because of our busyness, you know, ER docs have really, really stressful busy lives. Um, we're, we're living in this sympathetic toned state, right? Not in pure sympathetic fight, flight, freeze all the time, but this upper tone. And so one of the biggest elements, and again, that's a good thing. Like stress is a good thing. Stress is how we adapt from the moment we're born. You know, there's been this big painting of stress as being this enemy. Stress isn't a bad thing. It's a really good thing. It's do we come down out of that? That's the key element is the dosage is going to be big and we can have a ton of stress in our lives and be healthy, but we have to learn how to downregulate, especially before we're going to bed at night. And so this is where like using breath and shifting your lifestyle, you can have a ton of protective factors. If you're somebody, you know, first responders, right? ER docs, first responders, firefighters, police officers, special ops, military guys, if I'm working with them, I'm teaching them how to downregulate their nervous system on purpose with intention because that rest is what your system needs. And there's actually a good app called State. It'll actually walk you through that CO2 tolerance baseline, answer a series of questions that come from an emotional reactivity scale. So it's a psychological test to give you very custom breath protocols I think it's two or three bucks a month, but it's well worth it in my eyes because, and I'm not a part, I'm not affiliated with these guys at all. I just really like the app, but it will adjust to your neurology as you get better. So if you practice breath 
in any way. And again, some people do not like sitting, meditating, breath work. If that's not your jam, great. Like you can use and incorporate breath work into how you work out when you go for walks in between patients and have just as much positive change as having like a formal practice. It just depends on who you are and what you want to get into. Um, but the app has four different state changing kind of protocols. So there's one for being alert. This is a great one to do first thing in the morning. It's like having a strong cup of coffee and it blends. It does some super ventilation and it does some apnea. But depending on, you know, what your neurology is, might be different. So their algorithms, which I don't have access to through their research, has kind of married these different mixtures of breath patterns to create different states. So there's the be alert, there's be present, there's calm for if you're feeling stressed or anxious, and then there's one that you can use before going to bed. So it's a really easy way to just get into it without having to do mess around with a bunch of different stuff if you want to get into it a little bit more and experience different state changes. Talking about state changes, you, you said something that made me think about the end of the day. We had a show a while back about pre-gaming, getting into that positive set point so that you can have the mindset for work so that you can be in a flow state. And it makes me think about the de-escalation. And I got a lot of correspondence about people talking about their de-escalation, and it's usually something quiet. But what a lot of people do, and what I did for many years, was I would watch TV for hours. And I would just get into this zoned out state and I would talk to my partners and they'd say, yep, I get home. I watch at least 90 minutes of TV, at least. And I just sit there so that my wiry brain, because you, there is no more activated state than at the end of that shift. And it's not yeah. even like an effective activated state where you're just, oh man, I'm just on, I'm in the flow. You just can't come down. I don't know. Maybe watching TV is a good thing. You know, some people have some a finger to a John Daniels or whatever, but what would you say to that? And then what would you recommend as something more potentially more effective or something just to add on, right? TV, like it's such a good distractor, right? <laughs> yes. I used to come home from, you know, when I did crisis work in mental health, same thing, like on the pager call, we'd get, you would be in charge of all the incoming calls for the County for mental health crisis. And then you'd also have walk-ins, right? So it's just constant boom, boom, boom. I used to have, funny enough, we had even not that long ago, we still used pagers. And so I used to have phantom pages. People ask you if yeah. you're a drug dealer, doesn't have the pages. <laughs> yeah. Like what, what's that? No, people would be like, what is that thing on yes, your belt? The phantom page. Yeah. yeah. I'm like, that's a pager. What do they still make those things? <laughs> but after I'd get off shift, I'd have phantom pages and same thing. I'd, I'd come home and just need to like exit. And TV is such a good distractor to just totally exit from everything and, and come down. But it's not really putting your system into a down-regulated state. Doesn't mean you shouldn't do it by any means. Like any way we cope, I always talk to my um, clients about coping, whether it's negative or positive. Exercise is a way to cope with stress. You can overdo that. You can push it too hard. It's something I have to work with people a lot on. Substances, another way to cope watching TV, calling a friend. So there's so many different ways, but if we can start to think less about this is bad or good and be more intentional, the better things are going to be. Ask yourself, how much am I using this? Am I using this too much? Am I using this at the right or wrong time? So it might be, man, if you come home after an ER shift and you do four hours of TV, I've done that. maybe it's too much, right? Like, or maybe you really needed it that one time. But if you're doing that every single time, there's a negative effect to some of that. 
because you're not really coming down. But if you do maybe a half an hour, 90 minutes, maybe that's good for you. It just it depends on your life and, and what is going on in your life and what those needs after shift are. But there are ways you can come down in a much more intentional way so that your nervous system can get down in that rest, digest, and recover. Simple things like finding some quiet space. You know, for me, I have four kids. So after a, a long shift or a hard day in the clinic, I would park around the block in my car and I would take five to 10 minutes to do some breath work and just be quiet or maybe listen to some music that brings me down. What's your come down music? Probably classical music. And then your come down breathing. So the simplest way to think about down regulation and breath work is to elongate the exhale. It engages that parasympathetic nervous system. So right now my calm down pattern would be about 10 or 12 seconds in, and then I'd probably hold it for another 10, 12 seconds, and I'd exhale for almost 30 seconds. But I couldn't even come close to doing that when I first started. So I'll start people off really simple. If you can just breathe in, try breathing in for three seconds and out for six. No apnea in between. Yeah, just do that for 10 cycles and see how you feel. Does it make you feel really calm and relaxed? Was it too easy? Because if it's too easy, you can elongate it and have a bigger effect. Maybe your neurology is in a place where you could do 10 seconds and 20 out. And part of mechanics is also volume control. A lot of people, when I start working at them, if I have them breathe in for six or seven seconds, they hit their top before that time. And if I have them try to breathe out for 10, they run out of air at like six because they don't know how to control it yet. So there's different ways you can work on um, one is called ocean breathing to help learn control. And I'll try to do it to where it doesn't sound really crazy on the, on this mic, <laughs> but it comes from the back of the throat and it's called ocean breathing because it kind of sounds a little bit like the ocean. So you can do a simple pattern of like three in, three out or five in, five out to practice this, but it's going to sound kind of like this. So sometimes that can be something you need to work on before you can elongate that exhale. Is ocean breathing a tool to get better at the other kind of breathing or is it, a, is it an end in itself? It's both. A tool to help control rate, volume rate, how you're exhaling, how you're inhaling. The sound and the vibrations does have a calming effect. Well, you sometimes as do ocean breathing. Like, I'm going to throw a little ocean breathing right now just to, just to ocean up. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, I kind of have to do that if I'm going for like a 30 second exhale, mm -hmm. I'll make that noise or even sometimes add a little bit of a hum, um, which sounds, you know, different to certain people, but that there's something about that vibration, that the stimulation of it, that has a calming effect, at least for me, I found over time. So if somebody tonight, they're listening to this on the way to the shift and they think, all right, I want to calm down when I get home and I have whatever ritual that I do, do... Three in, six out. Yeah. Three in, six Keep out. Keep it simple in the beginning. Try like a good bedtime routine protocol that I work with people in is five in, 10 out through the nose, both in and out. If that's too hard after like three or four cycles, by too hard, usually what happens is on the exhale for 10 seconds, people start to feel like they need air 
at like six seconds. If that's too hard, just bring it down one notch. So try four in, eight out. It's just a one, two cadence protocol. 10 rounds of five in, 10 out before bed. Now, apnea, we've talked a little bit about that breath hold in between the breathing cycles. Mm-hmm. But why not do that in this, in kind of this basic introduction to figuring out what works for you? Part of it is, is that here's a wide audience keeping it simple. For some people, certain apnea can be a good thing before bed. For me, I actually do an apnea often before bed. It's a one, two, one. So apnea one protocol is a one, two, one. So for me, I started out five seconds in, 10 second hold, five seconds out. I did that for 10 rounds and like, I am ready to fall asleep. Other people that might not have the same effect. So you have to kind of mess around a little bit, but the five and 10 out is a really good one to start with. What you don't want is to bring kind of a sympathy. If you're working your system hard or you're pressing it to where the CO2 tolerance comes online and you feel that need to breathe, that has an upregulating effect. So we're really going for like getting your system down. You don't want to make it really hard on yourself. And some of the apnea protocols and those holds can be challenging. Let's take a pause here because we're talking about all of these different types of breathing. It's kind of confusing. First, Ryan mentioned the state breathing app. My wife and I got this and we tried it out for a few months. It is pretty cool. Subscription based, so you got to shell out a couple of coins. But the four states that it helps facilitate or that it purports to help facilitate are be alert, be present, feel calm, fall asleep. Alert focuses on forced ventilation. 20 deep breaths in and out like this. There's some other breathing exercises with it, but that's kind of the core of it. Being present combines a breath in with a breath hold and then exhalation that's twice as long as inhalation. Be calm is what we've been talking about mostly here, and we're actually going to get to some more, and that is inhalation with a twice as long exhalation. There's a little bit of apnea between, but inhalation, twice as long exhalation. Then fall asleep is the same thing, but it's over twice as long as calm down. So one is kind of calm down and the other is really calm down and then you're falling asleep. And Ryan mentioned ocean breathing. I mean, that's kind of getting a little bit more advanced on this, but it's a tool to help slow down the exhalation. If you're going to exhale for 30 seconds, you know, as you would normally breathe out, like... That's really hard if you're just going to breathe as you normally would. The ocean breathing puts the brakes on the exhalation, and it uses what feels like the glottis and soft palate to narrow the breath outflow tract. It feels like it makes the outgoing breath a little more turbulent, a little more narrow, a little less volume. You recently taught incoming freshmen at our local university uh, I, I don't, performance breathing yeah, for that's, stress. Yeah that's, yeah, that's what I called it. And per- performance breathing yeah. for stress. Were there particular things for their particular situation where you said, keep this in your back pocket. It's going to really help you out. And you've probably never done it before. When I take groups through this, I'll lead them through a series of patterns so that they actually get to experience what it's like to change their state, to ramp their nervous system down and feel really tired and sleepy or calm or peaceful. And then I'll ramp them up to where they feel super energized, maybe a little euphoric. 
and then I'll bring them back down into the middle where there's focus. So they kind of get to experience and everyone's experience is a little bit different because their, their neurology is going to shift to this differently because life is so stressful that I want people to walk away from is if you can work on breathing through your nose, tape your mouth shut when you go to bed. Yeah. Yeah. And, and once you get comfortable with that 20 minutes during the day, start doing it at night because your neurology will adapt and you can retrain the system to sleep with your nose and, and you're going to get deeper sleep. The other thing is any of us who, who work in stressful or semi-stressful jobs where we're reacting to a lot of stimulus that's coming at us, we need to be able to shift that state in the moment. If a student is like nervous before an exam or there's a big code coming in for your, your audience, your certain nervous system is going to come up a little bit. And that's a good thing. That's where we perform. But it's how high does it come up? And so we can yeah. learn. Frontal cortex yeah. is gone. Yeah. You need that engaged as much as possible for the test or the exam or for that patient coming into the ER. And so a really simple breath tool developed for special ops, military, first responders, police officers. Um, I would count ER docs as first responders. Tactical 3160. So the 3160 is the breath pattern. So think of a box breath, right? The box breath has four corners. You have the inhale, you have the hold, you have the exhale, and then you have another hold, and then it starts over again. So those are those four patterns. So the 3160 just tells you what you're going to be doing. Three seconds in, one second hold, six seconds out, no hold on the out breath. So you just start over again. Three in, one hold, six out. This is a really simple pattern. Some of it is based on like how many breaths you're getting per minute has a down regulating place to it. Breathing through your nose if you can, because that's going to help in a high stress situation. But this is a, a tool that I've gotten feedback from teenagers to paramedics to whatever, like if I'm in a stressful situation and I'm needing to focus and make good decisions and get that prefrontal cortex back online, it's a simple one that we can do while we're in action. Because a lot of these other ones that are really powerful, like the apnea, you're not going to be able to sit there in an emergency and be like, breathe in five, hold for 15, out for 10. It's just not going to happen. I found these types of breathing. I've never done the 3160 type, but you know, right before doing a fine motor skill critical procedure where I, I'm super amped, you know, and, and that usually happens early on in a resuscitation where like, I'm even a little bit shaky because I have mm -hmm. such an adrenaline surge. It's like, whoa, I've got to, I've got to take the shakiness away. And I've also got to focus in on this really tiny area doing that a couple times. It's helpful. My expectation, the first couple times I did it was, oh, I'm going to feel like I'm going through the strawberry fields. It's going to be fantastic. It was I took myself from a nine to an 8.5 yeah. and that was enough. And my expectation was I'm going to go from a nine to a two, but that's not what happened. Right. And it's probably really not what you want. You want to be engaged, right? You want that kind of a little bit of a sympathetic tone to it. It's going to help. You have a tsunami of chemicals, <laughs> cortisol, adrenaline, all this stuff rushing through your system. If you put up a, a couple feet of sandbags, like it's not going to kill the tsunami. It might help a little bit, but it's just getting you down into that awake alert state, right? Because you want to be alert. You don't want to be down in like chill, calm mode. That's where you want to get to after your shift's over. So that's kind of in the moment. Would that be the same tactic for transitioning. We're talking about these hypersympathetic moments, which are kind of few and far between, honestly, in any job, no matter 
how much of a in the arena performer first responder you are usually it's the mundane stuff that's not hypersympathetic but when you need to transition in the emergency department those transitions are very quick so you Mm. go from that code to your 80 year old lady with abdominal pain and the whole family's in the room and it's kind of very chill you need to be in the receptive to information phase so would it be that same thing, that same breathing move, maybe that panoramic vision move to just kind of squeegee your brain? Or is there a different technique you'd use? Panoramic, if you can. Also, focusing intently on something can also have a calming effect because you're not darting around. So if you're having to perform some small surgery, right, like there's that intense focus in one direction. So it does have a very calming kind of focusing, a little more energized than like the panoramic But yeah, that tactical 3160, or I'll tell people if you can't remember, you know, just let's say you're going from one thing to the next and you want to downregulate a little bit, take big full breath in and exhale slowly as you can and do that for like six breaths while you're walking to the next patient. And this is one of the things I love about breath work for me and my work is in between clients, depending on how my nervous system is reacting, I can shift gears. So let's say I just had two clients who are really depressed, maybe a little suicidal in my office. And I'm just like, that's going to bring me down. That energy level is just, it's kind of like this deep exhaustion. So if I'm coming out of that and I need to get myself into a more clear focus state, I might do like some fire breathing, or I might do some simple cadence in and out, five in, five out for a little while. We We haven't talked about fire breathing. So fire breathing, that comes more from the kind of yoga world. It's a one-to-one ratio and it's really driven with your diaphragm, but it's just a really fast in and out. (laughs) That's about what it's like. You can do through your nose or your mouth. Oh my God. If you did that in the hallway, the emergency department, not that people don't look, it's like Like, weird anyway. <laughs> maybe go into the maybe go into the break room real quick for that one. Or you can just do a, a simple like breathing in for five, out for five, and that'll kind of ramp you up or get you more focused. But most of the time, most people tend to need to downregulate, right? Like if you've been with the anxious person, or you just ran a code, or or whatever, whatever else you're gonna tactical thirty one sixty, big inhale, slow exhale, that'll be really powerful. I want to ask you a personal question. Yeah, that that happened a couple months ago. So I am afraid of heights. And we were in a gondola and we were several hundred feet up and the gondola stopped and it was really high winds and it felt like it was going sideways and really swinging. And it was, I don't think that I could have been more afraid at that moment. I knew rationally that I really shouldn't be, but I I could not control it. And I was trying to focus and breathe. What would you recommend in that intense phobia moment of, I, I guess that couldn't be more sympathetic. Well, it sounds like you kind of responded in a pretty good way, right? Like, it's, know, you were you were there. Was I responding well? He was drenching with sweat. Yeah, yeah. You were in a very sympathetic state, right? Because it's a, a fear place, and again, that's not a rational state. You rationally know I'm in a gondola. It's safe. All that, right? This comes deep from that limbic actually, system. I'm actually sweating. Yeah. yeah, I'm sweating right now. <laughs> sweating now. There, there are some therapeutic tools that could really help maybe shift that so it you don't have that response anymore. When you're in that place, a simple thing, big breath in, slow exhale. A much repeated pattern throughout this conversation, the prolonged exhalation, 
And it's similar to what I was talking about in pre-gaming with another breathing technique that I had learned. And that was breathing in for four, holding for seven and breathing out for eight, that same one to two ratio, one in, two out to create a down-regulated state. And now that we're getting close to the conclusion of the episode, I asked Ryan for his take home for all of this, kind of the underlying principles. And what's the most important step to take to get started? I would start with awareness. Breath is so unconscious. So it's starting to bring this into awareness. Ah, I'm on my computer at work doing charting and I'm not breathing. I'm holding my breath and doing this little (sighs) every once in a while. So I put a sticky note on my monitor, breathe bringing intention into what we're doing. If you bring some intention and work on this stuff, it can go back into unconscious, but in a better pattern to where you're breathing really well. And then you can also create this tool or skill set to change your state based on how you're breathing. Bring awareness into it. Keep it simple, especially in the beginning. Down regulation is probably the thing most people need these days. Simple thing, breathe in and slowly exhale. And then just notice, notice how, when you breathe a certain way, it affects you and you'll start to kind of bring more consciousness into this and live a life that's very different. At least it was for me as I, I got into this stuff. How do we transition through our day, through our days? If it's go, 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 which is our natural state, there's no transition. What about those interstitial moments when you are switching from task to task, from patient to patient. When you sit down and you are at your computer, how do you reset in those moments? Does a little cool down or a distraction or some activity at the end of the day compensate for 12 hours of just pinning it without reprieve? In this episode, we mostly talked about breathing, breathing through your nose, different breathing cycles, especially prolonging the exhalation to quickly downregulate. You can think of this as pushing against the sympathetic state or making room for a little parasympathetic recovery. This can be combined with expanding the visual field for a few moments for a state change. Now, these tactics are not the be-all, end-all for your physiology or psychology, but they can be powerful tools. And what we're talking about here is not some sort of radical transformation in 60 seconds. This is an accumulation of marginal positive gains throughout a day, a week, a month, a year, a career. Just breathe. 